As we stroll through the annals of history, it's easy to brush off earlier battles as primitive. Their tactics obsolete, playing no role on modern conflict. However, nothing could be further from the truth. The American Civil War, though 150 years ago, is considered by many historians to be one of the first modern wars. And as we demonstrated at Gettysburg a few months ago, the battles of that conflict display tactics and doctrines still used by the Army today. The Battle of Fredericksburg is no different. In December of 1862, Union forces under General Ambrose Burnside crossed the Rappahannock River in an attempt to secure the town of Fredericksburg, Virginia. Following the narrow victory at Antietam in September, Burnside hoped to use Fredericksburg as a logistical base to support an assault on Richmond. Burnside split his force and launched a faint movement towards Culpeper, Virginia, while moving the bulk from Falmouth to prepare for crossing. As Union troops massed off the far side of the river, General Robert E. Lee was initially caught off guard, but a logistical failure on the part of the Union Army spelled disaster for the Northern boys. It is here where we are providing our first lesson of the battle. Burnside set his attack in two prongs, with a crossing at both Fredericksburg itself and farther north across from Prospect Hill. As the Union soldiers arrived on the banks, they were met with open water. The pontoon boats had not arrived. All they could do was listen as Confederate forces arrived and dug in on the other side of the freezing current. River crossings were one of the most dangerous military operations to conduct, and on the Rappahannock in 1862, things were no different. By the time the engineers were finally able to establish their pontoons for the first crossing point here, they had lost the element of surprise, and Burnside's men would come under tremendous fire. This would be the first river crossing under enemy fire in United States history. Burnside's men made several attempts under the whiz and roar of enemy fire before finally establishing a foothold on the far side of the river. Here the tattered survivors were able to provide enough suppressive fire to bring infantry formations across the pontoons. And with that massive infantry at the point of breach, they were able to push into Fredericksburg and clear the town of enemy infantry and artillery. With the town cleared, the rest of the men were able to cross unmolested, but the battle had only just begun. On the far side of town, across open fields, lay a grassy hill protected by a stone wall. From Mary's Heights, Confederate forces looked out over the town from behind artillery pieces. This would be the next Union objective and the engagement which would cost them dearly. Meanwhile, downriver, the other prong of the Union advance crossed the river without resistance and found themselves in the shadow of Prospect Hill. General W.B. Franklin's wing began moving across the open fields, preparing to assault uphill towards a position occupied by General Thomas Stonewall Jackson. Their crossing had startled the Confederate defenders who were scrambling to reposition troops. As Franklin organized his corps in the line of battle, they came under fire from an unexpected position. When Franklin's men were first pinpointed by the defending Confederate forces, a young artillery major named John Pelham proposed a risky move. He proposed advancing one of his batteries to the extreme front of the Confederate line to fire on the exposed left flank of the Union. Pelham's plan was approved, and he rode with two guns to his position on the Richmond Stage Road. With the guns under his personal command, Pelham poured deadly fire down the flanks of several Pennsylvania regiments. After each shot, Pelham displaced, preventing the enemy from fixing his position and destroying his guns. After all of his shot was expended, and enemy counter-battery fire had found his position, 
Pelham withdrew back to his lines, allowing essential time for Confederate reorganization and reinforcement. After pushing through Pelham's fire, Pennsylvania troops under General George Meade pushed into this marching ground in front of Confederate positions. When Confederate Division Commander A.P. Hill was establishing his positions, he determined this terrain was impassable and left it unguarded. To the Confederate commander, this was not the most likely course of enemy action, but it's exactly the course of action that General Meade took. Behind these positions, General Maxie Gregg's Confederate forces had stacked their arms for fear of firing into friendly forces they thought were towards their front. Meade's men would attack through these positions, striking unprepared Confederate defenses, inflicting heavy casualties, and forcing them back. It was here that they breached the Confederate line and endangered their entire position on Prospect Hill. While this provided a brief advantage for the attacking Union forces, they failed to capitalize on the breakthrough. A lack of reinforcements to exploit this gap meant that though Meade and fellow commander John Gibbon had found weakness in the Confederate defensive plans, there would be no follow-on force to exploit this breach. Enemy counterattacks soon drove them back across open ground, creating an area known to later historians as Slaughter Pen Farm. For a conflict waged 150 years ago, fought with muzzle-loading rifled muskets and cannon, the Battle of Fredericksburg demonstrates some key points from modern doctrine. Burnside's assault over the Rappahannock is a prime example of a wet gap crossing. And although he lacked the modern conveniences of today's brigade engineer battalions, he still suppressed and obscured his enemy with his fires, secured a foothold, removed obstacles in his way, and assaulted through the objective to secure the town of Fredericksburg. Pelham's artillery at Prospect Hill is a prime example of flexible deterrent and response options for fires. Though he was unable to prevent the attack on the Confederate main line of resistance, Pelham's response delayed the initial assault and allowed Jackson's men more time to shore up their defenses. Once the Union forces at Prospect Hill finally were able to push forward, they identified a gap in Confederate defenses, attacking through an area the enemy had not planned on defending. They caught the enemy unaware. Unfortunately for Union soldiers, their leadership failed to organize on their breakthrough. If Franklin had employed the modern tenets of breaching operations, he would have known that the follow-through was a critical point. And after seizing the objective, he would need to exploit that success and continue the attack. Unfortunately, his men were not ready, and without rapid reinforcement, they were pushed back by a counterattacking force. Union forces would fail to secure a permanent foothold across the Rappahannock River here at Fredericksburg, and their repeated assaults on Mary's Heights and over at Prospect Hill meant that they would leave the battlefield with over 12,000 casualties. Confederate forces' effective use of defensive operations, however, meant that even though they arrived with less men to the fight, they would leave with just over 5,000 casualties. Less than a year later, the roles would be reversed, and Federal forces would inflict tremendous casualties from defensive positions prepared behind a stone wall at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania.